the future this week. Sydney Business Insights. Do we introduce ourselves? I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Once a week, we're going to get together and talk about the business news of the week. There's a whole lot I can talk about. Okay, let's do this. Today we look at why the tax office is interested in social media, robots in education and why phones that are not so smart are all of a sudden appealing. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima. I'm professor here at the business school. I'm also the leader of the Digital Disruption Research Group. So Sandra, what happened in the future this week? Our first exciting story is about tax. Tax. We're talking about tax. Second week in a row. Second week in a row. This is an exciting podcast about tax. The Sydney Morning Herald talks a little bit about who cares what you post on social media. And it seems now everybody cares, including the tax office. So they're actually reading our social media. The tax office is. The tax office apparently employed a team of data mining specialists or data doctors. And their role apparently is to look at your Facebook and Instagram pictures and to try to figure out whether you're dodging taxes or not. Indeed, the Sydney Morning Herald came out with an article that should scare everyone who has to, or everyone whose social media feed is not quite in line what they reported to the tax office in their tax returns. And they're trying to do this really in two ways. One of them is they're trying to look at Facebook and Instagram to see if you have a business that you haven't declared. Are you selling anything online that you haven't declared? Are you spending money that you're claiming you don't have? Exactly. Are you displaying bling that you couldn't afford on what you're telling the tax office you're making? They're not actually reading this in person, right? They're employing data analytics and pattern matching techniques to, you know, throw up those exceptions that they will then investigate and audit, right? That's apparently what we're being told. And again, this is not something you knew. So data matching is something that the tax office has been doing for a long while online, not necessarily with social media feeds. So the fact that they're now branching out into images and other types of data is new, but... Shouldn't surprise us. (laughs) It shouldn't surprise us, especially since this has happened before. So interestingly enough, even though this story has come out this year, in 2014, there was an interesting article on CNET that looked at the IRS in the US, the Internal Revenue Services, and how they are looking at your Facebook feed. And this story came out around uh, March, April, which is tax season. And if we go further back in 2013, Fox News came out with a scary news report around how the IRS was looking at your Facebook feed to try to figure out if you're dodging taxes. So this seems to be recurring news around tax season. Is this just the ATO catching up with what is happening in the US? Or is this just a story that pops up always around a particular time of year? We think it's a story that pops out every year, but this is something that we actually can do a bit of research on, which we will. This is an interesting story for a number of different reasons. What this points to for me, what it points out again, is the idea that really the data that we're creating in social media will more and more be taken out of context, will be used for other purposes. And, you know, it already happens. It's being used for marketing purposes and things like that. Uh, And it really points to the fact that we need to be mindful of what we're doing in social media. The point is that, you know, when people are talking to their friends on social media, they're they're in a situation that they're oriented towards talking to their friends, to talking to their family, and they might not necessarily think about the consequences of what they're doing, the traces that they're leaving. So they're innocently just leaving, 
you know, traces that can then later be taken out of context or be used for other purposes, as we see here. So I think this points to the need for each and every one of us to become more mindful of what we're doing, maybe to look into, yes, the privacy settings of the platforms that we're using and to really um, gain a form of digital literacy that many of us have not acquired because we did not, you know, grow up with these um, kinds of media. Uh, so to me, that's really an interesting aspect there that, you know, we should never forget that the data that we leave is, a lot of that is publicly available and will be used for other purposes. I think you point to a very interesting aspect there with how we perceive these spaces. And I think there's some nice studies looking at the fact that Quite often, places like Facebook, where we talk to our friends, are perceived, especially by students or the younger generations, are perceived as private spaces, even though they are public. And I think the other interesting aspect for me in that story was the way we perceive institutions. We seem to have different trust relationships to different institutions in that if we look at law enforcement organizations or if we look at the FBI, they have been using Facebook and social media to track down criminals mm -hmm. or to find out other illicit activities online. And we feel perfectly comfortable with that. We even encourage that to happen and we welcome it. But once the IRS or the ATO start looking into our own taxes and our own finances, we see that and there's an yeah. infringement of our yeah, liberties. But, you know, I mean, none of this is unproblematic, right? So the FBI has followed up on leads that turned out to be fake and that can have dire consequences for individuals. But you're raising a, a good point about um, the way in which people perceive these spaces to be private. Uh, I remember um, a story back in Germany um, a German social worker uh, who's going into um, schools, um, high schools, to teach um, young people about digital literacy. So what he used to do is he would go and, and find out um, who's in the class and then would go and um, see which, uh, which of the kids had their Facebook settings on public and then would print out uh, the Facebook stream or the Facebook wall of uh, one of the kids or two of the kids, would bring them as posters and pin them up in class. And the kids would be shocked and they would, you know, scream murder that, you know, this is private information, you can't put this up here in the classroom. And that would then, you know, throw them in the middle of a discussion about, hey, you know, I'm just putting it up here with your classmates, you've put this up for everyone to see. Imagine who is out there on the internet who can possibly see this, right? And you have a very powerful case to make to then, you know, sit down together and look into the privacy settings of those uh, platforms. And I think this is a point. Those platforms do not put those privacy settings um, front and center, of course, because they they want you to share as widely as possible so that the data is available because the data is the product in the end, isn't it? Exactly. If you're not paying anything for the service, you're the thing that's being sold on it. Yes. Or as someone once said, um, we're not, uh, you know, if, if Facebook uh, was a, a butcher, you know, we wouldn't be the customers, we'd be the sausages. So since we've done tax again this week, should we talk again about robots? They've been all over the news in the past week. Oh, there's been a lot. I mean, we could talk about this for an hour, I guess. Robots also seem to have, this seems to have become a shortcut for anything to do with machine learning, AI, computers in general, right? So we have to keep an eye on that. But there's been some interesting stories about taxi drones in Dubai. There was an article in Recode. There's a whole controversy around self-driving cars and how Uber is being accused of developing their robocars 
us from stolen Google technology. And that's one we'll keep a close eye on as it develops, as yeah, it might have interesting implications for the future of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. It's just unfolding. Um, but there's been a couple of really interesting stories about robots and children and education. There was one in MIT Technology Review about robots as role model for children and one in futurism.com about how your next teacher could be a robot. And I think that's fascinating because when robots mix with children, we learn a lot about not necessarily only about robots, but also about humans and how we relate to robots. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about robots teaching our children. So the article talks about having them in schools. And um, I think as much as we like to think of robots as, you know, looking like us or closely related to us and sitting at the front of the class. Um, this is much about technology going into the classroom and especially adaptive technology going into the classroom. I'd claim that to some extent we have that already. Not entirely new, right? It's not entirely new. And um, UNSW has developed a software called Smart Sparrow, which made its way into universities and adaptive learning technology that tries to figure out what the mistakes are that you're making and try to correct those mistakes and present you with increasingly difficult problems or problems that make you more comfortable in areas that you're struggling with or responding too slowly to. So we have those sorts of technologies, but that's not quite what they meant, is it? No, not quite. They went much further than that, saying that, you know, your teacher could be a robot. We could actually have computers teach children um, more or less entirely. And often the argument that is being put forward is that this is a really good technology for areas where there's not enough teachers available. Um, we can talk about that as a separate topic. But what I find quite interesting is the model of education or learning that um, goes into making claims like that, like the assumptions that are being made. Uh, it says in the Futurism article, and this is a guy named Thomas Fry of the Da Vinci Institute being quoted to say, it learns what your interests are, your reference points, and it figures out how to teach you in a faster and faster way over time. So what we're saying is the computer its almost treating the human as uh, you know, a thing to be figured out and then to be filled with knowledge in a more efficient way. Right? And I find that a quite a narrow uh, approach to uh, learning and also uh, to education. And... My point would be, isn't education and learning about, you know, gaining a positive perspective on life really about, you know, becoming a person and learning how to learn and appreciating what education is all about? There is so much more than stuffing your head with knowledge um, that goes into learning. So having adaptive technology that helps with certain learning tasks, right, I, I get that point to a certain extent, but claiming that a teacher is just doing that... Uh, I find a very dangerous argument to make. I would have to agree with the fact that extending this to anything other than um, mastering, let's say, certain mathematical techniques or coding or um, other aspects where you could rely on technology to correct certain types of mistake, extending this to a more well-rounded education, especially in sort of primary school or secondary school, is a dangerous argument. Also defending it on, on account that you might be able to take it into areas where you have a lack of teachers, this would often be the areas that would most benefit from having from actually having a human being 
um, at the front of the class trying to figure out how students from backgrounds that would not normally have access to education, how they develop and how to instruct them, or looking at countries where um, education is difficult, say rural parts of, of India or of Africa, where translate or, or taking over a robot that has been taught in a Western context is quite difficult because it assumes that these students, um, whoever they are, would have the critical literacies to engage with the type of content that we're giving them or the cultural competencies to even know how we learn and how we, what we're used to. It takes a very mechanistic view of learning, doesn't it? To me, education is about creating situations, right? It's emotional. Uh, it needs you to be there. It needs to be risky to a certain extent, and it has to have a point to reduce uh, teaching and learning to the mastery of certain, you know, mechanistic tasks is a very narrow view. Certainly has a place, but if I had to make a point or, you know, sum this up is how does a robot teach a child to be a person? Well, actually, I have a comment on that, and that would be that we can look at how that's happening, and it's not necessarily in a good way. If you think of Amazon's Alexa, the little speaker that yeah, you can yeah. talk to, there were a couple of interesting studies looking at the fact that if you put them in a house where oh, there is yeah, a yeah, child, that one. <laughs> where there is a child and the child is two years old, well, you can ask Alexa any questions, and you ha don't have to say please no. or thank you, and you can ask it 20 different times, and you can yell at it, and it will still respond. So they're actually teaching children to be rude at that age. So what it actually means that we're becoming more like robots, right? <laughs> Or they're becoming more like us. And I think that was the point that the Stanford University researchers were doing with the robot that they had developed to try to learn to speak and behave naturally. And it went on Twitter. And apparently in 24 hours, it became rude and anti-Semitic and, and really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People taught it to do all, all kinds of naughty things. So overall, I think robot teachers is something to keep an eye on. And it might not necessarily be about the next robot in the classroom, although I think there is a fascination that we have as humans with that. There's a Channel 4 TV series called Robots, where we have these humanoid robots called Synths that actually do teaching class based on a really good Swedish series, oh, actually, a, yes. on real human. It points to a whole nother discussion that's going to be had, not today, which is, um, you know, our fascination with robots and the role science fiction um, plays in the way in which we now uh, talk about the robots coming for us and they're stealing our jobs from us, right? Oh, As yes, if they took those our robots jobs. had, you know, human agency and were actually uh, living things that are coming for us, right? We just got to keep in perspective that we're still talking algorithms that have to learn from us so, so you know we're not talking real human intelligence in robot bodies yet yet something for next week well <laughs> we have one more topic for today which is dumb phones phones that are not smart and i'm hearing nokia is making a comeback yes apparently your next phone could be not a smartphone but a dumb phone An interesting article from the MIT Tech Review. Yeah, and one in Atlantic as well. There's, again, multiple articles approaching this topic from different angles. That are looking at phones that will only have one function, and that will be to allow you to make calls and receive text messages. No connectivity, yeah. no apps, and an actual physical Done that. keyboard. Done there, right? But yes, those old-fashioned phones that are not connected to the internet, that will not annoy you with 
Facebook posts, Instagram, Instagrams, and all the kind of Snapchat messages that are coming flowing in to our phones and notifications, but that are really just there to have a chat. So is there a future market for dumb phones in the era of smartphones, bigger and bigger screens, more apps, more connectivity, more features? That's a good question. I don't know. The Atlantic says the contemporary citizen of the developed world has almost no choice but to own and operate one, a smartphone that is. And yet the joy and the utility of doing so has declined, if not ceased entirely. I think that's the point, right? Smartphones used to be new, they used to be shiny, they opened up a whole new world of possibility and we were excited, we embraced it. And in a matter of seven, eight, ten years since the launch of the iPhone, these smartphones have enabled us to come up with whole new forms of communication. But the shine has come off a little, right? For a lot of people, smartphones just add to the busyness of life to an extent that they become nuisances. They become really a burden. We still want you to have them to listen to our podcast. But indeed, these dumb phones come on in this context of angst about technology and about the amount of time it takes us and about the number of times we check it. Um, I remember that saying that the thing the, the thing you first touch in the morning is the thing you, you're in a relationship with. And for many of us, that is our phone that we first touch in the morning. Indeed. So many people sleep with their phones under their pillows but at the same time it's it's almost like a love-hate relationship for many people these days and yes indeed many of us cannot do without them but we do not necessarily love them anymore i think it, it's more than just a technophobia that is developing i think people's lives are getting so busy and life has gotten very complex there's so much information that is streaming in and the solutions don't seem to appeal because outsourcing your control over what you're reading, what you consume to an algorithm, I think it makes people uneasy, right? Because you're losing control to a certain extent about what you take in as information. It seems that both in terms of joy and utility, smartphones have reached a certain plateau and they're declining. And that's probably also one of the reasons that companies like LG are mentioned or even iPhone in that they are looking more and more at how to improve battery life and the screen rather than add any more features as that's that seemed to plateau. But context, I think, also besides this constant infringement on our personal lives and on our time, I think that we should also consider the matter of cost. So these dumb phones, besides not offering us any of the apps or any of the connectivity that a smartphone would have, they also come at a very, very low cost. So that is also something that opens up a completely new market if you ask what is the job that this phone does for you. Yes, The Atlantic makes an interesting point there. They said it used to be called a mobile phone, right? Because it added something to the phone. It made the phone mobile. And I, I find that etymology quite interesting because then the mobile phone became smart. It became a smartphone. And now what used to be the mobile phone we call a dumb phone, right? As if it was a downsized version of uh, the smartphone. So that in itself tells you something. Um, but... I think this idea of the phone being dumb um, points to the relationship that we have with it in the sense that phones and the apps and the notifications and the way in which they throw things at us seem to uh, take on a certain control over us. I would, I would be really interested in a, in a study, whether it exists or we'd have to do it, about 
how much do we actually act on our phones and how much do we react? To what extent are we just stimulus response automatons reacting to uh, notifications and messages coming in and things that the phone brings up that we supposed to like or retweet? Um, and to what extent are we actually enacting our own human agency and our own human control over these devices? And I think that's at play here for some people who, who say, I really want a break from this. I want to just have a simple phone. I want to see what it's like to have a phone which only does things when I tell it to make a phone call. And I think that's probably one angle to explaining this. And we can also think of environments or industries or contexts in which this would actually be a benefit to those people. And one of the examples would be the construction industry where construction workers definitely benefit from not having something that is large, that breaks easily, that is a distraction. That you can operate with gloves on. Exactly, that you can operate with gloves on. And best of all, if you have a dumb phone, the ATO can't track what you're doing on social media. Exactly. And I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week, brought to you by Sydney Business Insights and the Digital Disruption Research Group. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online, on Twitter, and on Flipboard. If you have any news you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au.